Hello everybody, this is Bismarck from the channel Military Aviation History, here with an emergency episode for Bernhard, whom you were probably expecting to hear. Now Bernhard, against my better advice, decided to take one of those shiny new Panther tanks to the Eastern Front instead of flying there like a civilized person, and he is currently stuck in the mud with a broken transmission. In any case, it seems to be getting better for him now, and I'm sure he'll be back with us soon, and we wish him the best uh, for his recovery. Now today I am joined by Justin. Hello Justin. Hello, everybody. Whom, well, he doesn't really need an introduction either on my channel nor on uh, Bernhardt's. Uh, he's been a great help in the past uh, for, for both of us. Anything related to Japanese aviation and naval matters. Uh, in fact, Justin uh, did publish an article a couple of uh, months ago about the history of Jap Japanese aircraft designs uh, uh, prior to World War II. And I also know that he's working on another article that, uh, as we speak, so we're definitely looking forward to that. Now, in any case, we thought we'd turn our attention today to the air war of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, now, in this point, we will be focusing primarily on the period of 1937 to 1941, um, because, well, the latter year, 1941, kind of presents an organic cutoff point, uh, since obviously at that point, um, the, at the end of the year, uh, the overall situation changes quite drastically for Japan when they decided to make an unannounced excursion to Hawaii. Now, in fact, I'd say that the period of 1937 to 1941 is, in fact, the one you should be looking at if you want to understand uh, the Japanese way of conducting aerial warfare, since it was really that final puzzle piece in their transformation of both the Japanese Army's Air Force and, of course, the Japanese Naval's Air Force um, that were made before, well, the situation escalated with Pearl Harbor. Now, Justin, just to quickly set the scene here, what exactly happened in 1937 that kicked off this whole affair? Yeah, so uh, the, the Japanese and Chinese had pretty much been kind of um, fighting back and forth since 1931 on and off. Uh, what happened in July 1937 was the uh, infamous uh, Marco Polo Bridge incident. And what this, um, I'm not going to go into the specifics of the incident. Uh, basically, um, the Japanese had an unannounced exercise. Uh, one of their soldiers went um, AWOL. They started complaining that the, obviously some, the Chinese had something to do with it and fighting started. And then the next day that soldier actually had turned up. But it didn't really matter because uh, fighting just continued to spiral out of control. And what ended up uh, happening was what amounted to a full-scale invasion of um, uh, the rest of China, because they'd already occupied Manchuria, started to uh, occur. And then another um, important uh, month in 1937 was August 1937, where a similar small incident started in Shanghai, and that escalated uh, into another full-scale uh, battle. So there was basically two fronts, a northern front and a kind of a central China uh, front that would start in 1937. Yeah, these two fronts are actually quite important because they also represent a certain natural divide that we'll be going into with both the Army's Air Force and the Navy's Air Force. Um, now, to, to kind of give you guys an overview of what we're talking about in the amount of scale of the, the aerial aspect of this. Um, now, Justin, if I ever make a mistake here, you please correct me. Um, but some, some basic numbers here. Now, in 1947, the Japanese Army has a capacity of roughly 1,000 planes. Now, these numbers are a little bit disputed, especially when it comes to the ones that are actually operationally ready for the whole, um, for the whole campaign, uh, with roughly the figures I found somewhere between 500 to 600 are operational at this point. Um, 
the, there are 15 uh, regiments uh, with roughly 52 squadrons and uh, five of those regiments are actually a part of the Kwantung army. Um, can you just briefly explain what the Kwantung army is? Yeah, so the Guangdong army, they're the, um, they're kind of uh, Japan's bad bunch. Um, the army in general is quite disobedient, but the Guangdong army in particular was kind of a breeding ground for this kind of disobedience. Um, but primarily, at least in, in this point, uh, the Guangdong army was concerned with uh, control, uh, keeping control of Manchuria. So um, at least what it seemed, uh, what's implying there is that at least five of these air regiments would have been sitting in Manchuria, staring down the Soviets, at least initially. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Navy. Now, you got to remember for the whole part of World War II, um, and also at this point already, of course, although some people might actually argue, and they wouldn't be too much wrong, that World War II, in fact, started right here at this point in time. Um, but uh, we, of course, have the Navy, the Japanese Navy Air Force. And uh, they have roughly 600 planes at the moment, uh, 800 if you include their reserves, uh, with uh, 13 of those being land groups, so land-based um, air regiments. And then we have uh, 32 carrier groups. Now, the carriers that are specifically of interest here are Hosho, Kaga, and Rujo, because I think Akagi at this point is being retro refitted or something. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's right. It's getting a full reconstruction. Exactly. And then we have also Naturo and Kamoi. Did I pronounce that right? Those are seaplane carriers. Yeah, yeah, you actually did a decent job. Okay. <laughs> a decent job is good enough, I guess. <laughs> um, so, we're, so we're talking essentially, the, depending on what kind of figures you want to talk about, we're talking about an air force that is facing down the Japanese of at least 1,000 operational aircraft, uh, around about that, that figure. Now, the Chinese at this point, um, actually, before we talk about the Chinese here, um, the Japanese at this point are completely remodernizing their air fleet. Um, in 1930, they had roughly 5,000 air crews. Right now, they're already sitting on roughly uh, 10,000. So that essentially they doubled the amount of um, personnel they have um, for, for their, in their services. Uh, but that's not the only thing they're doing at the moment. They're completely revamping and modernizing the air fleet. And maybe Justin, you can say something about that specifically for the for the aircrafts, uh, what they're doing at yeah, the moment. Yeah, I, um, I won't get into too uh, too many specifics. But in in very brief, the army and navy were kind of awkwardly caught. I always describe it as a, uh, the invasion or the escalation of the war in China was not like some kind of Operation Barbarossa and like all this planning and things like that. It kind of happened by mistake and there's a it's very complicated i'm grossly oversimplifying it but in short the, the japanese navy and army air services were kind of caught with their pants down as far as uh, equipment was concerned uh, for example the armies um they had the the key 10 in service which was a respectable biplane uh, the key 27 hadn't turned up yet uh, their bomber fleet in particular was quite obsolete by this point they were kind of um, making do with bombers that had entered service in kind of the early uh, 1930s. And the Navy, similarly, particularly their carrier-based aircraft, uh, were still undergoing modernization. This is before the famous um, B-5N Kate, as it's often known, or the uh, D-3A, the VAL. Um, and the A-5M was just starting to uh, enter service. And really, the uh, out of all the aircraft, the only one that's like, was actually first rate um, by international standards uh, at this point was the G3M, which had also very recently 
uh, entered service. Okay, so so having done the Japanese then, just having set the scene bri briefly there, let's talk about China. Now China at this point, the Chinese Air Force, even though we are going to probably during the this discussion call them the Chinese Air Force, they do not represent a unified service. Just like there is this kind of uh, fraction or schism with the Japanese between the army and the navy, there is a whole bunch of like small little personal air fleets uh, that specific regions or warlords actually command. Um, at the same time, there is, there is in theory this kind of overarching Chinese air force that does exist. Um, but again, in practical terms, um, the cooperation between these uh, these well different regiments and, and fighter wings and bomber uh, formations and so on squadrons um, is very limited. Um, this also means that the overall standardization in the Chinese Air Force, again, that's just, there's that overarching uh, term Chinese Air Force, um, there is no real standardization. They have Italian planes, they have German planes, they have American planes, they have British planes, they have anything that could really get their hands on or anything that for some uh, questionable means um, were acquired. So, so we have a very fractured, a very decentralized, a very, uh, well, even logistically speaking, suboptimal Air Force, um, who are sitting on, all things considered, roughly 300 aircraft. So on the one side, again, we have the Japanese, they're on, undergoing a certain amount of transformation at the moment. Um, and they have the army and the navy, and together that represents maybe roughly 1,000-1,200 operational aircraft. And then we have the Chinese with 300 aircraft on the other side. Uh, some of them quite modern, actually. Some of their aircraft were relatively up to, to par. And then you, you have this, this plethora of uh, completely outdated machinery. And from any, any kind of equipment they have, they don't have enough. It's, you know, it's 20 fighters of this kind. 30 bombers of this kind, 10 bombers of this kind, you know, five fighters of this kind. It's, it's, it's a mess. Anyway, um, let's get into the actual fighting. What's going to happen right now is, um, of course, uh, the, the invasion kind of, or the, the fighting starts with the army, with the Kongtu army up in the north. What exactly happens with, with, the, with the Air Force part there? Uh, well, initially, um, at the, as this uh, incident starts to escalate, there's actually a directive um, that kind of assigns different areas of responsibility. So in the North China area, um, the Army Air Force gets primary responsibility. And then uh, eventually, uh, when things start blowing up around Shanghai, the, uh, the Navy uh, gets kind of that jurisdiction. Now there's some overlap and stuff, but we're not going to... So in very general terms, that's kind of it. Army in the North, uh, Navy in kind of Central China. Yeah. Um, now the Army... Like going into this conflict actually had a doctrine that we don't know a lot about in English, but we know a little bit enough to basically sketch it out. And you could kind of see it to um, just reading up on their air campaigns. And that was uh, something they called the, quote, aerial extermination action, uh, which is a really fancy way of uh, basically saying what in modern terms uh, you would call like offensive counter air. Um, they wanted to destroy the enemy's air force. And then once the enemy's air force had been destroyed, they would then switch to a ground, uh, direct army support role. Um, so, you know, just attacking frontline units. Um, there's, I've read accounts of what we would call interdiction um, further behind the lines. Uh, they did a lot of when, when at this point in the war, the Japanese are really smashing um, 
the Chinese. So Chinese units are kind of disintegrating and fleeing, and that's when aircraft come in and start hitting all of these fleeing units um, and things of that nature. With uh, maybe also to break it down and to, to explain a little bit how this natural divide came between you know the, the army uh, the army air force being in the north and of course the, the the navy being in the center, it's also kind of makes strategically sense. In a, in a certain manner of speaking, the army, of course, deployed in the north, so their air force is going to cover their own guys, whereas the navy has to keep in mind kind of the maritime uh, interests here. And they, they see it as well in, in such a case that if they strike at the center and perhaps even the south of, of China, uh, they, con they can then control the maritime routes there. Um, so for, for them, this, this, this makes a lot of sense as well, just this, this kind of natural divide between what they're doing. Um, of course, the, on the flip side is that even though there are some instances where both services cooperate quite closely with one another, most of the time they operate very much independently. And uh, you could perhaps even argue that in the later months, um, when you know, we're going to talk about 38, 39 and in the 40s as well, maybe a little bit more cooperation between the services would actually have been, uh, would actually have been quite helpful. Um, now, how, how did it actually start for the Japanese? The Japanese Air Force, both the Army and the Navy, did they have a good start to the, to the war? Did they, did they have run into unexpected problems? What, what was going on there? Well, in, in very brief, in the North, uh, the Army Air Service wasn't running into an overwhelming amount of opposition. Uh, so initially, at least, um, and, and air operations in the North were also relatively small scale. Um, when things blew up around Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek made the conscious decision and his uh, German advisors um, to fight what amounted what would amount to a, basically a decisive battle around in in the Shanghai area. The, the battle is actually huge. It was the largest um, battle fought in an urban center before Stalingrad. Um, it, it's just massive. And what uh, the Jap or, sorry, not the Japanese uh, the Chinese air uh, air force is thrown into this uh, combat uh, pretty much wholeheartedly. Um, as people um, should probably know, the capital of nationalist China was Nanjing, and Nanjing is very close to Shanghai in central China. So this is where the, the you know, at least from the, from the Japanese perspective initially, this is where the, like, if we get Nanjing, uh, we might be able to win the war. Um, and from the Chinese perspective, while well, they're trying to you know, protect their capital as best they can. Um, and in these initial engagements around Shanghai, uh, initially the, the Japanese mount some very impressive, uh, what uh, historians often call quote-unquote trans-oceanic bombing missions, or uh, what it is is uh, um, na uh, naval air groups made up of uh, land-based attack aircraft, which was the, the designation for their uh, G3Ms, their uh, medium bombers. Uh, they were based on Taiwan and in Kyushu, uh, the southernmost main island of Japan. And they were launching missions uh, against targets in uh, central China, primarily airfields. Uh, this is a, a very impressive feat, actually, for 1937. I mean, the, uh, the round trip for some of these was, um, I think, 1,150 uh, 1, miles or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. It, and it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive, not just from the kit, but uh, if you think about it, it's probably also the first time that was done. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that sense, and uh, the, the operational planning that actually was involved in th those kind of operations, you know, you, f you think about it at the end of the war, of course, in 1945, stuff like this, the, the distances that were involved in, in kind of these bombing attacks, 
um, this kind of stuff seems like it's natural, but in 1947, it certainly isn't. Yes. Um, and while these, these initial raids were really impressive on paper, when you actually look at the results, right. yeah. uh, these missions were, the Japanese, like pretty much everybody else, were like, you know, the bomber will always get through. We don't need fighter escorts. They're fast enough to avoid interception. And so they're thrown at these extreme ranges with no fighter escort. And usually uh, the, the Navy strikes were at very low altitudes as well mm -hmm. to help with accuracy. And also, I, I haven't read something specifically on this, but I also assume it's probably kind of something born out of their anti-shipping training. Yeah. But they'd come in and bomb targets at 650 meters, like, like right on the deck. And... Uh, these attacks were predictably absolutely savaged by the Chinese uh, Air Force and anti-aircraft fire. Um, and in the early, uh, in in the first few months of the war, the uh, the two air groups involved actually lost about literally half their str strength, half their operational aircraft, uh, launching these raids. And one was so catastrophic uh, against Nanjing that they pretty much. <laughs> they killed. They killed this whole transoceanic bombing yeah. thing, and they mo started moving closer to air bases, and they started um, introducing fighter escort. Now, in the defense for the Japanese, you know, we probably should also mention is that when they first launched these kind of transoceanic raids, they didn't actually have the capacity to give them escorts because a the mm -hmm. escorts didn't have the range, yeah. um, and because they didn't actually have any. Um, any airfields on the mainland of China in the area that the actual aircraft were going to do their bombing. Mm -hmm. Once that changed, of course, the, the, the amount of escorts um, that were given uh, improved. But as you said, the, the initial losses that the, the Japanese actually suffered on those raids are quite staggering um, for the time. Now we're talking about, I, I believe it's like 30 to 35 G3Ms that they have lost or something. Yeah, way? something like that. It, the numbers when you see in, in this conflict, like if you're looking at it from, say, a, a, the perspective of 1944 or something, they're pretty small. But yeah. by, 19, by the perspective of 1937, um, uh, like these, these are actually quite large numbers. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, so oh, f you know, for, for the Chinese then, so, so we've mentioned, you know, what the army does, what the Navy does, the Chinese, um, you, you were saying that they, they kind of throw in their force wholeheartedly not everything goes their way um what really happens once they start losing their initial air bases around shanghai around nanjing uh, what do they do how do they cope with this yeah so the chinese kind of go all in in shanghai nanjing they they you know really give hell to the japanese but the japanese are also hitting back and of course, this was not a fair matchup. So eventually what ended up happening is the Chinese Air Force was, at least what they'd had pre-war had been chewed up almost to extinction. Uh, I've seen some figures as like, pretty. I think it was by September 37 or something like that, they were down to like 30 aircraft or something. Like, yeah. So it was almost annihilation. Um, and at this point, actually in the background from August 37, the Soviets and nationalist China had been talking um, they eventually sign a pact, and as part of this um, kind of alliance, not really an alliance, but like this agreement, um, so Soviet quote-unquote volunteers uh, started to arrive in China, and indeed, um, they, so they started supplying hundreds of aircraft, uh, all sorts of logistics personnel, uh, advisors, instructors, you name it, uh, including pilots. Yeah. And 
uh, they started, uh, pilots and aircraft started to arrive right in time to help in the air defense of Nanjing. So what ends up happening is uh, one source uh, basically described it as after, after the initial um, Chinese Air Force had been wiped out, the Soviets had practically grew to dominate uh, what was quote unquote the Chinese Air Force. Uh, there were still Chinese pilots and things like that fighting, but the Soviets took on actually quite a significant role. So in the air anyway, it started to become almost a, a Japanese-Soviet conflict and, uh, with some Chinese helping them out, particularly um, anti-aircraft gunners. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess I'll quickly mention, um, Chenault had actually been brought on as an advisor uh, long before, you know, the AVG and things that, that were, he was really famous for. Uh, and he did a lot to um, help the Chinese and even the, uh, the Soviets to a certain extent uh, set up uh, bomber interception. And Nanjing, actually, overall, between German advisors uh, for setting up uh, the ground-based anti-aircraft defense, uh, Chenault coordinating air efforts, and then Soviet assistance, uh, Nanjing was actually quite a heavily defended uh, target to try and bomb, and the Japanese would uh, find this out the hard way, and it was actually quite hard to bomb. Yeah. So for, for a quick note again on, on, on the Soviet kind of assistance here, where, where, what Justin is saying that this is very quickly grows to be the dominant factor here for the Chinese is very much true. Um, the Soviets, I, th I think the initial figure is that they want to send or they, they, they will send 500 aircraft, uh, roughly 150 uh, so-called volunteers, um, who were, by the way, rotated. So it's not just 150 guys on a one-shot. Um, overall, they were rotated. Um, and the logistical uh, kind of support and, in, in fact, the logistical effort to get all these aircraft to China was quite staggering. I mean, I've read accounts that apparently the, the Soviets, uh, after they, they've noticed that you know, flying wasn't really an option, also because of the altitudes involved and, and, and the, the, the weather factors and the meteorological factors on the ground, um, they would send their aircraft there um, disassembled. And to do this, they had to construct new roads, they had to construct um, uh, bridges and, 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 and tunnels and so on. And they did all this relatively quickly to get all this equipment down there uh, as fast as possible. And it's actually quite uh, staggering, this, this the kind of effort that was put into it. And it's especially staggering because everybody always talks about how much assistance was sent to Spain by the Soviets and, for example, by the Germans. But here's the same thing happening in, in, in Asia and uh, very few people actually talk about it. Um, now, with the overall uh, communication, you know, the overall structure of, of the Chinese Air Force at this point, the, the effort that is being led primarily by the Soviets at this point, um, how much coordination is there with the other services? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen a lot of any significant uh, coordination between the two. Uh, the air services, of course, or not air services, the, the Chinese Air Force and uh, slash Soviets, they were primarily doing uh, defense, of course. They were, yeah. they were constantly on the defensive, so they were usually defending cities, defending their airfields, uh, etc. from Japanese attacks. Uh, they did launch some offensive raids, actually, um, to a significant degree of success, particularly Soviet volunteers. There's uh, one raid, just for example, um, quite early on, where uh, SB2s, which, of course, by the standards of uh, 37, are actually quite modern. Oh, yeah. They are, uh, they launch a, a quite an effective attack against uh, Japanese air bases on Taiwan. 
and they come back and this actually makes a, a real impression on on the uh japanese and there's other certain uh, other raids launched by sp2s and tb3s um against uh periodically against japanese uh airfields that would do a lot of damage and this kind of foreshadows uh because the japanese were very slump sloppy with uh airfield defense and construction and it was already biting them already back in 37 38 yeah so if we if we continue a little bit on you know what's going what's happening at the moment um most of you have probably already heard this from what we're essentially saying at this point it's very much the chinese air force as much as it still exists is fighting predominantly the navy because the army is still stuck in the north however once these cities fall you know shanghai nanjing and the um the uh, the Japanese start driving into mainland China and, and of course uh, with the drive also to Wuhan um, things start changing quite rapidly again on, on how how the dynamics of the air war are actually conducted um, in Wuhan uh, which Chinese hold for some time they in fact also try to sort sort of uh, recuperate from the losses that they have been sustained that they have sustained so far and I think also in Guangdong and you know, was it Chong? No, Chongqing was the new capital after after Nanjing fell. Yeah, Chong, uh, the wartime capital for nationalist China. Um, there was an intermediate period where it was. Oh, I'm trying to remember the. I, I should. I it, it just blanked in my brain. But that's there's fine, a there's fine. a brief period where the wartime capital moves. I think it was in the. It was at least in the Wuhan area. It might have been one of the tri. Wuhan is a tri city. Yes. So it might have been one of the tri cities or something. But uh, eventually, it moves to Chongqing. Um, but in 1938, the big drive, uh, particularly in the air and on the ground, is to capture Wuhan. Uh, and this is where you see some very large-scale um, aerial engagements between Soviet-slash-Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, and there's heavy losses on both sides. Actually, in some cases, the Soviets-Chinese actually gain the upper hand and really um, slap back some Japanese attacks. Uh, one time, actually, so badly that the Japanese stop raids for a brief period to recuperate before uh, <laughs> resuming operations uh, but ultimately eventually wuhan would fall on the ground and in the air uh, these these grinding high intensity um, air battles would eventually lead the, the japanese to gain uh, the upper hand and they would kind of hold on to that upper hand um, with some tactical setbacks all the way through to uh, 1941 right so when the capital also moves maybe one of the things that we could mention is when uh, when it moves to Chongqing, um there's a lot of flak defenses around that city it's actually quite impressive how much flak they have uh with the japanese sustaining quite a few losses to those um and uh the the japanese also developed quite a quite uh, excuse me the chinese also developed quite a for the time sophisticated early warning system um that helps them out big time there and one of the, the, the interesting aspects here is really that Japan went into the war hoping to destroy, categorically destroy any kind of Chinese air force that was in the existence in 1947. By this time point in time, they've gotten very close to it a couple of times, but the Chinese are still holding on and they still have their air bases and they just keep pulling back, recuperating some of their losses, getting you know, foreign equipment especially helps them in this sense. And because they never completely destroy the Chinese Air Force, because there is, there is that foreign influx of know-how and experience and equipment, um, this is going to bite the Japanese back in the long term. Um, even you might might argue in, in 1945, when, when obviously the Chinese Air Force is mainly 
uh, kitted out with uh, Western and American kit. Um, but because they, the, the Japanese never really finish the job, do the coup de grace, um, they, they always have that looming threat in the back that the Chinese Air Force still exists on the ground over there and still could come back and, and potentially um, you know, be quite, quite, a, quite a nuisance. Um, now, going through 1939, of course, at this point, the, the war in Europe sort of kick, kicks off. Most nations still at this point don't really look at what's going over uh, on in Asia, um, even though there's actually quite some significant events. For example, the, the way that uh, Chongqing, the, the new capital, was bombed um, is actually, it's probably one of the worst bombings on a city before World War II in the, the Western sense kind of kicks off. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, Chongqing is kind of one of those forgotten cities. It was one of the earliest to be, if not uh, the earliest, to be bombed in a sustained uh, fashion. Uh, the Japanese, particularly the Navy, which is kind of weird because um, people usually associate uh, what we would call maybe terror bombing or, or strategic bomb bombing, which are two different things, but uh, the Japanese kind of did a little bit of both. Um, they associate that with the army air arm or what are an independent air force but bizarrely for the japanese it actually ended up primarily uh, as a navy job uh, the army would help a little later on once they got aircraft that weren't you know 10 years out of date or something yeah or not 10 years but um like seven years or so out of date. now going into 1940-1941 this is the last kind of the last final stretch that we're going to touch upon here is uh, the japanese are rolling out with some very impressive equipment at this point yeah, so by this point, the, the, both Japanese air services have almost completely re-equipped from what they had started uh, the war with. Um, by 1941, the, G4, the, the famous G4M Betty was just entering service. Uh, it didn't see a lot of service in China, um, but, you know, it was there. Uh, in 1940, the, uh, the Zero made its appearance. Um, which of course is probably the most famous. Uh, the Army II is introducing new equipment. The Ki-27 uh, made its first appearance in 1938. It wasn't like a, um, like by, by European standards, it wasn't absolute top of the line, but it was it was respectable. Uh, yeah, the Ki-21 uh, medium bomber had entered service. Right, and this is actually also kind of a, a pretty good point to conclude this here. Um, because of the experience that the Japanese have in China, both the army and the navy, even though not everything goes their way, they have quite a few setbacks, but they also have uh, quite a few impressive moments, like those trans-oceanic uh, um, strikes and you know the, this kind of testing ground for themselves for, for introducing new equipment into a war zone, which generally, especially with what we're going to see uh, forthcoming in the next couple of years when World War II really kicks off, um, you 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 have these guys that that are more more experienced and 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 kind of ha have already an idea of what you're going to be facing in the field, um, where China where China was kind of their testing ground, their their baptism by fire. Um, anything beyond really the crew experience, the new kit that comes out. What did the Japanese learn during this time when it comes to aviation, whether it's the army or the navy? Yeah, I'll, I'll I guess I'll mention a couple things very quickly. I'm actually writing. For those who don't know, I guess I'm actually writing an article on this that uh, it won't be earth shattering. It's kind of just taking little tidbits from uh, a lot of works that have already been published and kind of putting it in one place. But the Japanese air service has actually learned quite a bit from their experience in China. Some of it good, some of it bad, and some things they chose to ignore. Um, and, and I mean, it's kind of the same thing with uh, the Western air powers and the Spanish civil wars. I'm sure uh, um, Bismarck is 
abundantly familiar with, where they kind of picked and choose to what they wanted oh, to yes. take away from the oh, Spanish yes. Civil War. Um, so for, uh, just to, to pick a couple random examples, uh, the Shotai, which was kind of the, the basic tactical formation of the, uh, both Japanese air services, um, they obviously originated from the very tight British Vic that everyone knows. Uh, and when they entered, sir, uh, when they entered the war in 1937, um, that's kind of what they were using. Although even beyond that, uh, pilot discipline from accounts I've read, uh, was poor. So even with the British Vic style, uh, uh, Vic, uh, they weren't really holding that formation. They'd kind of be like uh, the, the the stereotype kind of one v one duels and, and in kind of the uh, World War One fashion. You read accounts of uh, you know a lone a uh, a lone A five M you know types type ninety six fighting a lone Chinese fighter in 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 over the skies of Nanjing. Hmm. As the war continued they found out the shotai was too inflexible so they loosened it significantly and it very rarely entered combat in a v formation it would form a very loose line astern or left or right echelon plenty of spacing they could watch each other's blind spots etc so they, they reformed it uh, of course uh, people that kind of know a little bit about um, fighter formations know that the, the germans had actually come up with kind of uh, rota the, the loose pairs uh, in the Spanish Civil War, which was a tactically superior um, formation to even the reformed Shotai. But the Japanese at least took a step in the right direction, just not quite as, as far as uh, the Germans did. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, even with the Germans, um, it, should, it should be said that the Germans were not the only ones that came up with it. Um, in yeah. fact, I, recently I, I, I discovered that the Finns were already um, experimenting apparently with a two-man formation at around the same time. Uh, the, oh, Soviets, uh, the, the Soviets were as well. Um, and most air forces and, and, and most countries actually very quickly realized there was something there, but there's always a little bit of uh, institutional obstructions there that, that mm -hmm. really prevents these, these kind of changes. And uh, it's, it's like you said, you pick and choose. And some countries chose certain aspects of what they learned in China or in, um, in, in the Spanish Civil War, and then it completely ignored others. And oftentimes those things that they ignored turned out to be actually pretty valid. And, and sometimes the things they put, uh, took out of it, um, like you said, with the Shotai now, with the loose information, was a valiant attempt to kind of get, get rid of a latent problem of, of the, that they were having. However, going forward, it was probably the wrong call. Although it must also be said that with the Shotai that they had, they did actually experience quite a lot of success mm -hmm. until it was yeah. too late. Um, yes. But yeah, that, that, I think that rounds up off quite nicely. Is there anything that we can say what the, the, the Chinese learned at this point? Is there, I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the, the Chinese effort, as we said, is very disintegrated. Um, it's not centralized as much as it should be. They, they, I think going forward, we, we see uh, two different air forces developing as well in China again. On the one hand side, the Chinese um, are fractured there as well, but also we have, of course, the AVG coming in and foreign volunteers. Um, but what specifically can we perhaps say that the Chinese have learned from this, this war? Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, I won't be able to, to go into too much detail on the Chinese side. There's just so little written from their yeah, perspective, unfortunately. That is true. But um, I guess some, one thing to take away is that the Chinese were fighting hard. And they did actually produce some aces. They had some success. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, they, by, by basically 1940, uh, they were fighting what you could call almost an asymmetric war in the air. As in, they, they'd withdraw their, air, their aircraft, they'd, they'd 
hide them. They'd only launch when it was favorable. They would uh, return to their airfields when it was unfavorable. And it was really excruciatingly frustrating for the Japanese. You can almost feel the frustration <laughs> uh, uh, on the part of the Japanese. They're just, they're going, they're strafing all of these airfields. Try, they're, they're sending in bombers um, that look unescorted, but they're hiding fighters in clouds nearby to try and sucker the Chinese into coming out to fight them. It was... Uh, so, so this kind of like uh, almost uh, in, a, in a way fighting dirty or, or not fighting fair uh, against a, a much stronger opponent in the air was uh, was quite fascinating actually to um, uh, to read up on. Yeah, it's quite clever actually. The, some of the things the Chinese did, and of course, a fair fight is not a fight you want to get into. Yep. So uh, all uh, all the more power to them. All right. Well, thanks very much, Justin, for for uh, taking your time and explaining a few things here about a uh, aspect or an air war that uh, most people don't really talk about that much. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's always a joy to uh, help uh, you or uh, MHV out. So. Thank you very much. And yeah, of course, we hope that Bernard is on a speedy way of recovery. Uh, you guys will be uh, seeing him certainly in the upcoming days. Um, as he as he's back back in action and i hope you guys enjoyed this little discussion as well and as always have a great day good hunting and see you in the sky